Hey, welcome to the DC Beer Show. Uh, we're in Ashburn, Virginia. Lovely at, Ashburn, yeah. Yeah, we're at Dynasty. We're at the Dynasty Brewery Tap Room here in Ashburn, but we are not talking about Dynasty today. We're here with Alex Lynch. We are talking about Maeza Blendery. Yes. Thank you, Alex, <laughs> for joining us. And uh, I'm diving right into this. Alex, explain to our listeners what a blendery is, because you're not technically a brewery, you're a blendery. Uh, so it's a little bit of a made-up term, but yep. uh, but then you could also argue that the, the Belgians have been calling themselves blenders for maybe a couple hundred years or something. So um, the way I like to phrase a blendery is uh, you can make you can divide beer making into basically two steps. One is like what's called wort production or what a general brewer will call brewing. You know, you're mm-hmm. grinding the grain, you're mashing, you're boiling the liquid, you're adding hops. Then it goes into a fermenter. And that second stage is maybe fermentation. So a blendery, as I'm sort of defining it and how the sort of the business model works is you are contracting out the wort production and then you're doing the fermentation on your own. So my understanding is legally for the the feds and stuff, uh, once you add yeast, that's when all the aspects of regulation regarding alcohol is concerned. And that's sort of, um, so I would be licensed as a brewery. As a brewery, right. Um, You're making alcohol from something, right. And then currently right now, Fabian and I are doing something a little different where uh, I'm kind of building up stock to then be contracted out. Wait, um, explain. Building up so, what So I uh, have to maybe dive a little bit into barrel aging, but uh, basically I'm, I'm filling a lot of barrels uh, with uh, a lot of uh, currently sort of mixed culture, often sour beers okay. that uh, they usually take a long time to mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, probably 12 to 18 months is probably a good time frame. So right now I'm just kind of building up these beers stock, to the point right. of, yeah. And How then, many barrels you got right now? I think it's... I'm looking at them. 70 or something 70, right now. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you're yeah. in a, you're, so, a barrels elsewhere. As so well, what but. you're doing, just just simplify this because it's part of my job, but is you're taking, you're taking wart. Yeah. You're adding that, that somebody else has produced for you. That, yeah. That in this case, mostly probably dynasty. Um, and you're adding yeasts and other microbiomes. Yes. Putting it in barrels. Aging it for a long period of time, pulling it out of barrels, putting, adding fruit, yeah, adding yeah. adding fruit, or, but but then taking sort of different barrels and combining them, or the out or the output of different yeah, barrels so and combining it to, th- to create an end product. Yeah, sorry. Um, so there's a there's sort of the structural thing that I explained earlier yeah. that this this is you know wart elsewhere, um, and I, there's some benefits to that, but also I'd look at a blendery as sort of a different approach to making beer. So. Your average Pilsner or IPA, they taste great all the time, but mm-hmm. they're kind of going through an assembly line process right. where blending may occur prior to packaging or if a batch is a little bit off, but uh, almost all those you know, single fermentations are, are intended to be a single unit to live on their own. And so the way I see blending is actually more of the mindset of you're making these different beer components and not all of them might taste good on their own. But if you're able to blend them and in certain proportions, you may achieve an, an end product that you couldn't have basically made those compromises in a single batch. Um, so a lot of that right now is what's called maybe mixed culture fermentation or mm-hmm. like sour beers, where even if you take the same culture, put it in two different barrels, a lot of times you'll get very different flavors, even though it should have been the same stuff. Right. Uh, you know, same wort, same everything. 
Um, but then if you step back, so that's what a lot of this blendery stuff is. That's what a lot of, you know, historically a lot of the Lambic guys were dealing in, in sour beer, basically, right. um, and, and calling themselves blenders and weren't doing any wort production. But if you think of that concept, there are other things that have nothing to do with making sour beer uh, where that sort of blendery um, approach might make sense. And I'm sort of trying out stuff in those realms. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, maybe Firestone Walker's anniversary series is the most public example of where they're taking like a bunch of, you know, maybe this is a stout, maybe this is like an El Dorado hops, uh, barley wine. And a lot of those, when I tried them, I always like, I can't tell what style this is, but you definitely created sort of an amalgamation that, that really made sense. Yeah, um, and they yeah. were doing that with winemakers. So that's, I don't have a ton of experience with that end. And I, it might be a little bit more confusing to me. Um, mm-hmm. But that you could see that as sort of developing out of this blendery mindset. I just want to clarify, are you doing that now or are you just doing sours right now? Uh, you're just sours right now. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's, a, you know, so it's, there's a lot of talk for uh, just one little maybe narrow facet <laughs> of this uh, <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I about, I really got into sours a long time ago, you know, back 2011, um, mm-hmm. sort of when Mike Tonsmeyer had his blog uh, yeah. and Nathan's Ender or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I was basically fermenting in a DC basement and I didn't want to make kind of a crappy IPA that fermented at 75 or something. So I just like, I knew Saison's usually dealt with good high fermentation temps, did that, made some pretty good ones, like kind of off, off, off the, you know, first run and just nice. kind of stopped looking anywhere else. So, um, you know, I have no Porter recipes in the back of my, you know, pocket at all whatsoever, but, um, so you've been, you've been really focused on sours for longer than maybe the industry has really uh, been thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, Russian river was cranking stuff out. Sure. And, you know, Mike, Mike was probably, you know, three or four years, um, in, in terms of his blog ahead of that. Um, yeah. So, and I had a great sort of unfinished basement that belonged mm-hmm. to no one else. Um, that I could take advantage of. So yeah, it's been a focus for a while, um, but not perf- not on my own terms, I guess. Yeah. So. On the website, what you say is you're focused on mixed and spontaneous fermentation, oak vessels, and expressions of terroir. Now, I love hearing that because I think terroir isn't used often enough as people talk about beer. But it, but explain how how you actually generate, quote, expressions of terroir in the beers that you're producing. Uh, yeah, and for people who don't know what it is. Yeah, let's explain terroir. terroir? <laughs> uh, I'm not an expert on this, but a lot of times it's a sense of place, and it really mm-hmm. came from the wine world, more or less, where they yeah. try to, you know, sort of say, like, the soil and, you know, the environment, and all these things made this, you know, it might yeah. be the same grape, but it's behaving very differently in this area. Yeah, let me, I'm going to jump in, because I think, I think, Terroir is an interesting concept that I've been spending a lot of time on over the last couple of years in a variety of different ways. And, and I'd like to just offer my thoughts on this because terroir is very focused on wine, right? The exact same grape uh, can be grown in two different locations. Terroir refers to the differences in the flavor of the outcome of that grape based on things like you said, Alex, the soil, um, the climate, the rainfall, all the things that localize that. It's why two different Cabernets taste completely different in a lot of ways, right? Terroir is also being used a lot now in talking about cannabis production <laughs> uh, and how different and how the same strain of a, of a plant will give you different flavors. The cannabis industry is just becoming more and more legal. It's really looking into how the flavors of a particular plant change based on where that specific genetic material is grown, just like with, with plants. But 
that so so for the listener, sorry for that diversion. I hope you now understand this. I want, now we're going to talk to Alex about how he's bringing that concept into the beer he's making. Uh, so despite I wrote that somewhere, I'm kind of uh, at least mentally I'm very much as a creator kind of at a crossroads a little bit. So mm. you know uh, I see a lot of opportunities for it for sort of expressions of place. So mm-hmm. uh, when you do spontaneous fermentation, which uh, is sort of probably came out most of the lambic tradition outside of Belgium, where right. you're not adding any yeast. Basically, you make a, a kind of a special beer uh, using what's called the turbid mash, which is very different than how most brewers generally mash. You're adding aged hops. Almost every beer people actually like are using you know new fresh, fresh hops. hops. Um, but you're kind of, those things probably lead to creating something that when you just leave it out in basically a pan and let it cool out overnight after the after the boil, mm-hmm. um, whatever kind of falls into there, uh, it it's sort of a good base so that that fermentation actually comes out well. Right. Um, I've done a number of these on a personal scale, um, like personal barrel fills in a basement, and then I was able to get a couple batches in at Dynasty uh, this year. Nice. So just um, like just like opening it up, and so natural fermentation. Yeah, uh, yeah. we used a converted. Uh, Overly sized, basically hop back. So you know, <laughs> Dynasty has basically a ten barrel system. They have like a six barrel hop back. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of debate online that basically there's sort of the general surface area of the tank that's important for the rate that it cools off, and then there's also the surface area of like liquid exposed. And uh, I didn't have room for a cool ship just to use twice and leave somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and it's nice to use that money elsewhere. So. Uh, we used uh, Dynasty's hopback, and it's pretty good on the like the, the total surface area, including the sides. Uh, but it's probably not true to style or something, uh, or at least true to imitation of uh, the surface area. So it seem, they seem to have done okay so far. Um, so, but that's an example of terroir where the microbes came from this one area. Right. Another area where I do see a lot of potential is in with using fruits. So. Uh, I kind of look at fruits as in, in sour beer as a, sort of a, a unique method of preservation that might actually add something to the whole culinary landscape. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right now there's all these cool varietals out there that probably just don't make it to the grocery store that well. Either it's yeah. the agroeconomics or just the branding is tough. Even if you have this killer peach that has something really crazy that people go crazy over, it's only in that farmer's market for like a week and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so with sour beer, uh, the, the acidity is heightening the fruit. The same way like salt, sugar, fat kind of do on a general level. And then, uh, but the aromatics are being kept around more than I think in a jam or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, working with other local producers and really playing with those varietals that might, that people don't know about, but can be preserved in a beer for like up to a year at least. Wow. Um, that's an opportunity for both the growers and the producers that really might showcase, you know, the mid-Atlantic as an example. But then the other side of it is, I think, uh, especially in the wine world, I, I would argue that maybe a lot of these guys are getting overly terroirist, um, not terrorist, but uh, <laughs> terroir, terroir, uh, where, you know, they're starting, if you look at maybe the French, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but the French Appalachian kind of method, like, you know, you mm-hmm. can't be branded of this area. You have to be doing certain practices and right. certain right. grape varietals right. are tied to the area. And maybe it's saying like, no, this is Pinot grown here. Um, with these, you know, so it's kind of like everything's being tied to this, like just demonstration of place. Right. Right. right, Reality. uh, When do you bring in the human creator? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so with with sour beers, there's kind of a crossroads where we can almost go with like the mixologist route where the cocktail world is like anything you give us, we will make an infusion with. We will make a simple syrup. (laughs) We will blow it up. We will do anything. Um, Money is no option. You know, 
you just create something that's a mix and just make the yeah. best flavor mix you can. Yeah, yeah. The wine world and the opposite of like, show me this sense of place. I want to see where I'm drinking. I want to feel where I'm drinking kind mm -hmm. of thing. Transport, you know, this valley in a glass. And in sour beer, you can kind of take it both ways. And nice. maybe some of the beers in front of you are like, a little bit of the crossroads there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was exactly the explanation of blending. I think that that people can hopefully understand. It's uh, it's a it's a whole new direction, and the kinds of sours you're making are are different than than most of what's out there. So tell us a little bit about what we're drinking, uh, just so we know. Yeah. So a lot of Let's these start are with this one. Uh, so we're starting with the R Rose. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a dumb name, but uh, it. <laughs> It was naming sucks. We all yeah, know that naming it was an internal in uh, nomenclature uh, of basically reverse, reverse rosé, which yeah. is sort of an explanation of what happened. So, um, this is sort of basically sparkling rosé meets gin and tonic. So, um, I had done a, a, a grape sour beer in the 2018 vintage. Um, pulled the sour pulled the sour beer off the grapes. So whatever whatever was done with the fermentation and the skins. Uh, was kind of left in the vessel, and then I put more beer on it and left mm. it for about three months. So you, there wasn't much fermentation going on, but you probably got whatever the skins and flesh were contributing, probably a lot more tannin compared to the earlier ratio, a lot right. less fruit flavor. Um, so it was really dry. Um, that's something I'm pretty excited about. And then it could definitely stand on its own because I don't know what craft brewers or drinkers actually want. It's like, well, this could be fun. So I added juniper berries, lavender, pink peppercorns, uh, hopefully pretty judiciously. Like there are like three levels of trials of dialing in each ingredient, then trying to see what the blends are doing a, a miniature blend of that, mm -hmm. seeing how the flavors balance. And, uh, I think you'll never make people happy, but yeah, uh, yeah well, I, I, I've some enjoyed people, it quite this, a bit. The interesting things I find about sours is that it's a, that people are much more dialed into how much sour they, they can take. So something that I really like because I'm more used to pickled foods, for example, yeah. you know, um, somebody else who's not into pickles, doesn't like pickles, will find way too sour for them. Um, but I think this one particularly, the, the R. Rosé is, is, is just sour enough, just tart enough, but there's a complex set of flavors, um, including that really nice sort of fruity but but juniper-y thing in yeah there. Just well, and you definitely get that wine feel from it well yeah absolutely absolutely totally and it, yeah i agree it's not super sour but it's a nice level of sour to go along with the complex flavor yeah what so, else you got tell us about something else uh yeah so another one is uh moon driven sea which is basically an elderberry so it's about 50 percent elderberry sour beer with two different varietals of kind of dried elderberry uh, one had a lot of more like a lot more subtle cocoa jasmine almost. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a little bit more reserved. The other one was like almost Provencal kind of spicing borderline oregano thyme kind of funk. Uh, and then I bet and then about 28 percent of Cab Franc, Virginia wine grown Cab Franc uh, grape sours in there that kind of gets overrun. Oh, not overrun. It's definitely a, a behind the player player kind of binder that yeah. the blend was infinitely better with that kind of playing the back end um but you, it's hard to pick out individually so again kind of dry uh very dry yeah, yeah. In the ph on all these is kind of on the higher side mm -hmm. so not as not as sour as a lot of yeah. stuff but um but then it's kind of fun to compare to the titratable acidity um and trying to pick out what actually people identify as sour or not is sort of a, a personal production yeah debate. so so to me this is almost not sour yeah, I think that's like a yeah. three five pH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you definitely you know, get the spice. 
Uh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to is to give wine lovers tastes of sour beers, right? Because wine lovers traditionally, or at least the wine lovers I know, look down on beer. They they don't understand it. You know, they're way into this Cabernet or that Pinot or that Merlot or they hate rosés or whatever they've got. And they don't they don't understand beers. And so I try to introduce the one of the ways I introduce wine lovers to beer is by introducing them to sour beers. And I think what you're producing and the beers that I'm tasting are they exactly the kind of beers I would want a wine lover to drink to be able to understand how complex beer is as a as a product and as a creative thing compared to wine because that's the argument i always make to wine drinkers wine is awesome i love wine beer is creative in ways wine will never be able to be and this is how like you made these flavors i would assume with a vision in mind of wanting to create a, a taste and a flavor yeah uh so some of the magic of blending is uh to use sort of a stupid um, carving analogy or a sculpture analogy is like, you know, the cracks in the marble dictate where you go. So right. w- at least when I term a responsible blending is like, yeah, I want to do an elderberry sour. Yeah, I think these components would fit. You add the elderberries, then you have to, there's the next responsibility of like, okay, is this how you turned out? Or like, it might, you might be able to force that beer into a given pH range, mm-hmm. but maybe the best beer that the the grains and the marble are showing is actually no this this actually should be a little bit more sour mm-hmm. because blending these elderberries with this is like probably it's it's truer self or something like that so maybe that's stupid but um, no 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 uh, I think, but I think that makes all. sense and it, it it gets to the heart of what I was saying which is that there's a creativity in beer that you don't find in any other kind of beverage that we create even craft cocktails like the the core gin is gin. Well, I'm I'm not gonna get I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, Jeff. But <laughs> I, I do the comparison with wine and beer a lot, and blend and what you're doing with blenders is really so interesting to wine drinkers. I find. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I was actually did an event at uh, Walsh Family Wine, which is out kind of in Percival, Hillsboro, mm-hmm. um, like kind of beautiful estate. Uh, and so basically, I, I, I used their grapes, uh, Cab Franc and Cab Sauv. Um, in the 2018 vintage. So I basically had three beers that use those components and trying to figure out like what they, what sort of the, their wine drinking tasting room customers were into or not, uh, was maybe a little bit of the reverse of what, you know, people <laughs> in the dynasty tasting room liked with these collaborations. Really? Uh, so yeah, I kind of, we, we're not pouring it today, but I had basically just a, a grape sour beer, really light in acidity, like a three, five pH, um, cab from cab soft, sort of in a 50, 50 is how the blend turned out. And, uh, I was excited about it, but I, I think in the, in the beer world, it was just a little too subtle. It's like um, there wasn't Juniper kind of hitting you in the face. Uh, <laughs> while I was there, it was like a complete reverse where right. I think a lot of people didn't know what to think of Elderberry. They either liked it or they didn't, um, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And then so I, I got no conclusions from that, but trying to figure <laughs> out where people fall uh, and when this comparison and maybe blurring of wine um, is unclear yeah. to me at least. Um, so looking at blending, I mean, it, it seems like it takes a different palate than just tasting beer. And how, how is it different or how is it similar? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I found it hard to describe. And, you know, like 
any good Frenchman kind of you just like rely on the mysticism. Uh, uh, but <laughs> that's that's magic. actually yeah yeah it's like you cannot like you know I've been born into this and yeah. I bleed whatever. Uh, some of the Lambic guys might have been taking that route a little bit. Um, but that's what I've that's sort of the most exciting part, and that's is is the process of blending where it is like a little bit mystical where you know just it's not an addition game. If you like the flavor of this one component, add it to this, it might just go away. It mm -hmm. might, there's maybe a slight off flavor. You blend it down to like, now it's 25%. And it's still that, that off flavor has the same resonance as it did when it was just the single component. So uh, I'm sure there's science underneath this, but at least from a producer's level, practically it's very hard. So it's all done by the palate and, um, you're kind of building relationships and you're, pal you're getting palate fatigue as you do it a little bit. So it's kind of this like, and you're often relying on the gut where later on you can justify and justify via tasting notes as to what you liked and didn't. But oftentimes this is like these immediate impressions, you know, it's like in basketball, your, you know, your emotions happen and like before you even like cognitively realize it. So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, the consumer does not get to see that. Like they get the finished, character the finished identity the finished balanced project uh balanced you know end product so um i'd love to open that up but logistically showing the the magic to other people is just is hard to do right, but, um, right. in the future allowing consumers to engage in that part of the process is what well, not only the final product is mm -hmm. It's hopefully that can be worked out. When you're doing the blending, who are you bringing in? Like, who's helping you? Because is it just you or do you bring folks in? or do, And do you bring different people in to help you through that process? Uh, no, it's just me. And, just uh, you. you know, it's okay. just kind of that executive chef thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I had a quality control stint at a California brewery for a couple of years. And, you know, there the whole that's like stupid, you know, because what they do is, you know, it's I don't care about your tasting notes. It's, a time, it's all these like. You're taking the same IPA from different batches. You're always doing these triangle tests. So mm -hmm. two of the samples are the same. One is different. I don't care what descriptors you add. Did you get the Did you get the triangle test right or not? Right, right, and right. And then right, we'll right. then we'll take any it's positive negative. They're they're very focused on the consistency. And what any quality control dude will tell you or dudette or um, any person, sorry, is um, it's never um, everyone has a blind spot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then imagine when you're adding all these other ingredients and in a blend, you know, blending fruits or whatever, and what you get at it and what intensity, uh, it's, it's not going to be, you're going to miss something. Um, yeah. and, but at least at this stage, uh, just having a kind of a honed creative, uh, place to start from, um, is important, I guess, or is it need to kind of establish that a little bit more. And then maybe in the future, if like if you have someone else doing your blends, like put their name on the bottle. Like that's sort of the exact like, yes, I like what this company's doing, but this was this was Paul's blend as opposed to, you know, Jessica's oh, yeah. blend. That's interesting. Uh, so I'm playing with that because mm -hmm. I think it is different than like the shift brewer knocked out this beer. Right. And it's like, yeah, like he's a good brewer. I trust him brewing this. If we're doing one batch, there are some breweries that may say, oh, no, you know, Jeff will take this run or something <laughs> right, like that. Right. Like we can't screw this beer up. Um but I think it is a little bit more important uh, in a blending to maybe at least showcase the blender. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that blending process? So are you taking just small little parts from each barrel, tasting them separately, mixing them in different quantities? I mean, how, how does that go? Yes. Uh, so uh, just from the sampling end, a lot of what uh, barrel-aged hour guys are doing is they have a stainless nail in there, in, in the barrel head you know, the, 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 the circle that faces you mm -hmm. and you pull that out and it's uh, basically you take maybe 
you know, definitely under a five ounce sample because right. uh, as you sample from a barrel, you get headspace. And in general, all the a lot of the off flavors that will occur in a mixed culture or sour beer are going to occur from oxygen exposure. So mm. limited sampling is necessary, but you also need to know where your components are at. Um, so uh, I just kind of see blending as a constant tension between diversity and fluency. So by definition, you're going to have a better blendery if you have a diverse barrel stock. So you have all these different flavors you can draw from, um, you know, different alcohol contents, just different beers. Uh, you have more options to create what you're trying to do. Uh, the other side of that is if you do 3,000 barrels, do you think you can actually have like a personal connection with any one of those? <laughs> uh, which, you know, a lot of times when you taste something, there's a little bit of like a personal like, oh, I get sure. you kind of yeah. thing. So, you know, that you can't be perfect on either. But and then but where is that right kind of tension lie? So you see a lot of a number of individuals that maybe have gotten like three fooders and like, yeah, that's fooders are easier to work with. Um, and these are like perfect for your, you know, manpower volume kind of stuff. But like you basically put all your sour beer into three baskets, hmm. um, yeah. you know, three vessels that's as well as, but you know, maybe 3000 is too much to, to think about. So basically you are going to rely a little bit on maybe some pH and gravity, or I know I want to use a dark sour base or something like that. Um, and that will help you get to a place. But I think you kind of hit on the challenge that uh, you want continually more diversity, but you also need to know your product at, at that at blending stage uh, to make the perfect blend. You know? so, and maybe you just won't, you know, you just kind of not necessarily cut corners, but uh, it's like, yeah, this beer works and you rolled with it. Um, but to be a, like blending in its perfect sense, maybe that shouldn't happen. Now, you talked about the microbes before. Did you know that the microbes in this area would produce a good sour or... Was it just lucky happens? I mean, how do you determine where are you going to do that? So currently about 80% of the production, the sour production currently is, um, were, were micro or cultures that came from other sour producers. Okay. So a lot of the, basically you take a, a sour beer and take the, the tail dregs and then you, you grow that up and, and, and allow it. And then, um, a lot of the, the production here is sort of like, I, I, I use 30 different cultures, this one I like a lot. I'm going to use that to re-inoculate an up upcoming batch. So it's kind of like this herding mentality of I'm going to continually pick the best barrel and, and procreate that and survival the fittest kind of based on, you know, human intent. Spontaneous is different. Right. Uh, I think there's no reliance that this area is good. But I think what we're – American producers, when they're starting to figure out this spontaneous method, uh, they're realizing that if you build the beer right, it might not be like it was in, in Belgium, but you're getting a lot of the, the characteristics. So I haven't been able to sample enough other American producers spontaneous, but it seems that if you're building that, that wart correctly, um, you're going to have sort of the same um, ecosystem will occur. So maybe your apex predator is like a tiger or a mountain lion or something, but then like, you know, this sort of like, the representative microbes will come out. And I think that the minimal amount of published studies are kind of showing that. Um, if you look at, I mean, Allagash, I think had a paper published on their spontaneous and sort of, and now they're able to kind of at the genetic level, identify species, which, mm -hmm. you know, in the eighties you couldn't do. Right. Um, and they're certain it's, it's very similar to the studies compared to Cantillon uh, with the one tidbit of like Allagash had this three week 
incident of lactobacillus, which is a type of bacteria mm-hmm. in their in their barrels. Cantillon supposedly has like no lactobacillus. So it just kind of did this. There's all these different yeast, weird yeast strains that pop up. Then it's sort of this dance of Britannomyces and Pediococcus, Pediococcus and other souring, lactic acid producing sour bacteria. Um, so it's kind of funny that there's like no lactobacillus while it's maybe 95% of the rest of sour beer in the nation, in the Amer- in America is like very lactobacillus heavy. So mm. um, interesting. I, I don't know what I, I developed a lot of these cultures, uh, both in professional brewing uh, as well as like an extensive home brewing. Cool. Let's talk about where this is going over the course of the next six months here. You've got 70 barrels over there. They've all got stuff you're working on. You've been doing this for a little less than a year now, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, at um, least barrels holding stuff. Yeah. Right. 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 Because it takes time. Like you're that's that's one of the differences between you and a traditional brewery. Right. A traditional brewery can put out a beer in as little as two weeks if they need to. Yeah. You know, um, you're talking months and months and sometimes more than 12 to to get where where you want. What's your output look like when you're at your next stage? Right. Because. Are you, do you want to be putting out one beer a month, one beer a week? Where in between that? What's your goal for being able to introduce something new into the marketplace? Uh, so that's a good question because, you know, it, it, you know, buying fermenters is expensive. <laughs> buying barrels is a little bit cheaper. You know, they're probably yeah. like 96 bucks, you know, a barrel for, a, you know, including the barrel rack, 155 bucks. You can do that incrementally far better than a, than a $20,000, you know, stainless fermenter that you find in most brew pubs or something like that. Right. Um, but then the other side of it is like, yeah, you need to, you're projecting for a year later. Um, and I think you're just never going to be able to hit that mark perfectly. So um, a little bit is like, I kind of did the base numbers and like the stuff aging a dynasty to be contracted out is a good starting place where you, you, maybe you'll break even in short. Uh, if you're producing <laughs> sour beer as, at the margins they do and in, in terms of the internal numbers, uh, how much to grow it and where is is something I really don't have an answer for. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's fun about the blendery is like the floor plan's pretty minimal. Like uh, you need basically just have a trench drain, mm-hmm. a couple fermenters, and then a lot of warehouse space with barrels. So um, at least maybe you're not throwing a lot of money at other things that you'll regret later. Um, yeah. So I'm probably at least doubling and then kind of seeing where the market takes you. And then the other side of it is uh, the blendery and especially in the D.C., Virginia area, there's a lot of uh, potential for maybe engaging in sort of ways to market as, mm-hmm. as a.k.a. Yeah, like not necessarily a tasting question. room or a distributor. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Because, you know, this, the in short story is that there's big, bigger companies that are focusing on distribution, they get less margins. And then the rest of the craft beer world with kind of new tasting room laws are really focusing on catering their beers to that tasting room experience. Mm-hmm. And they get better margins on a much, much smaller volume, maybe right. like a 10th or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So what I'm trying to maybe explore, and I think the is, you know, how much do the like a wine club-esque model work? Mm, and all these places, like they make sense in terms of quality control, in terms of control rights to your brand uh what's unclear and the margins are probably better what's unclear is how many people are actually going to sign up for any of this so uh that's sort of like testing the waters and that's but it's probably safer to start off in those avenues and then see how they go and build from there um but that's a big question Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i have to say just seeing a whole wall of barrels is pretty incredible i mean it's impressive it's a it's a great it's five barrels high yeah 
Yeah. yeah. No, it, it is. We got to make sure we get some pictures and put that because it's, 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 it's a lot. I got they did several yeah. pictures of them. Yeah. All right. Alex Lynch, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us about what you're doing at Maeza Blendery uh, here in Ashburn, working out of Dynasty Brewing Company. We really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming, guys. Uh, great talking to you guys. Yeah, it's been great. So if you're ever out uh, in Loudoun County, which you should be because there's like over 30 breweries out here, uh, and you swing by, make sure you swing by, talk to Dynasty, and try some of the beers they have on tap from Maeza. I'm loving this stuff. I am Me a, too. I'm a sour beer lover. Uh, my wife is too. I'm going to take some home to her. Uh, and, and But what you're doing is, like I think, taking, taking some of this stuff that a lot of great brewers in the area are, are, are trying out, and you're taking it to a next level. So really appreciate what you're doing with yeah, this. Yeah, and sauce. I have to say, I mean, I'm not a sour beer lover. I like sour beer. I love your sour beers. Yeah. It sounds great. (laughs) All right. And remember, uh, you can, listener, dear listener, get all the information about everything going on in the DMV craft beer scene by going to dcbeer.com or following us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those socials at DC Beer. And remember, always drink great beer. (laughs) 